Let me begin by encouraging you and uh, encouraging you to be thankful for pastors and elders and worship leaders who saturate you with the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good deed. So if there's any good deed to be done in this church or in these cities, it will come from the Word of God. And through those who have faithfully ministered the Word of God, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Whatever was spoken of old was spoken for our encouragement by the steadfastness of scriptures. We might have hope, faith, hope. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. He spoke that we might have joy, faith, hope, joy, all coming from the word. The goal of my charge is love that comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience and faith unfeigned. Faith, hope, joy, love, all of it through the word of God. Blessed is the people who has a pastoral staff and an eldership and a worship team that causes you to hear the word of God over and over again. So be thankful for your leadership. So let me pray and ask God's help in ministering the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I plead with you now that you would come and you would give strength to me, wisdom to me, liberty to me, and that that the hearts of the people in this room would be in love with the Word of God. They would be so hungry, so ready, so eager to hear the voice of God that it would land on them with remarkable effect. We have sung glorious truths, and now Jesus has more to say to us. So come, be our teacher, I pray. Through your spirit. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, we're going to be focusing on John 8, the Gospel of John, verses 48, chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. And I'm going to read that with you and then open it with you. John 8, start in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, 
Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That's amazing. (laughs) So I know why every one of you is here this morning. That is, I know why God, in his providence, brought you here. He brought you here so that you would know you don't have to die. That's why you're here. He brought you here so that you would know that the one who says that is I am. Yahweh God Almighty, not John Piper. That's why you're here, those two reasons. That you may know that you don't have to die and that you may know that the authority behind that statement is not mine but God's through Jesus God. That's why you're here. And then there are a few implications of that for your life. Like massive, total ones. Nothing stays the same if you don't think you're going to die ever. Everything changes. You don't live the same. This creates crazy people, wonderful people, wild people. I believe that. There's another piece to this text, isn't there? The opposition. It's terrible. John doesn't record the opposition that Jesus is getting because it's pleasant to read. It's horrible. This is family, right? These are his people. He has come as a Jew among Jews in order to save the Jews and bring the kingdom to the Jews and present the Messiah to the Jews and fulfill all the promises to his family. And they say, you've got a demon. That's not pretty. Have you ever had a family member say, you're crazy. You've got a demon. 
and it comes to a fierce conclusion, right? When Jesus responds and says, I don't have a demon, I'm God. It comes to a fierce conclusion because they pick up stones. What are they going to do with those? They're going to kill him. According to Leviticus 24, stoning is the capital punishment for blasphemy. They weren't confused about what he was saying. This is a very, very violent and scary moment. And it's all built around this crazy statement. If you keep my words, you're never going to die. I wrote a, an article a few weeks ago just because it was just brimming out of my devotional life. I've been trying to memorize the Sermon on the Mount for months. <laughs> I'm 68. It doesn't come easy anymore. So, uh, but I'm working. And, and I was just so impressed how utterly ludicrous it has been over the centuries for people to try to turn the teacher of the Sermon on the Mount into a pleasant, comfortable human teacher of ethics and the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and let's just all get together and love our enemies and, and you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and he says many will say to me on that day Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Who's talking? The judge of the universe is talking. At the last day, everybody reports to Jesus. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the ethical teacher. And that's him right here. My words, you keep them, you never die. Who, who do you make yourself out to be, they said. Well, that was a good, good question. Really good. The opposition has already been going, right, in this chapter. All of chapter 8 reports opposition, and uh, it comes to an end there of the beginning of the chapter in verse 47 Jesus says to them, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So they had already shown themselves deaf to the word of God. They're not listening to the word of God. And Jesus says, the reason you're not is because you're not of God. And now they're responding in verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying, you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, what, what was that? Samaritan, where did that come from? It's a multi-layered slur. At one level, the Samaritans are Jewish half-breeds who 600 years ago intermingled with the Gentiles, formed their own little Bible and, and decided to worship in another way besides appropriately at Jerusalem. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans and so they're calling him one of those, one of those half-breeds. But here's another layer, I think. Several times in the Gospel of John, the issue that Jesus was born of Mary and nobody quite knew who got her pregnant is under the surface. 
Like, we don't, we don't know who your father is. For all we know, he was a Samaritan. And then, to cap it all off, and you've got a demon. So a racial slur, a slur against his mom and, and his origin and, and a slur against the power that he's got, namely, you're, you're just demonic. That's who you are. This is pretty ugly and pretty powerful stuff. And Jesus responds, verse 49, I do not have a demon. You know, I asked you a minute ago, has, has any fam- family member ever said, to you, you're crazy. It's just a light form of you've got a demon. What do you do at that moment? I mean, anything you say, they're going to say is defensive, probably. But Jesus was just very settled and steady. I don't have a demon. You say, have a demon? I don't have a demon. I'm not crazy. I do not have a demon. I honor my father and you dishonor me. That's an understatement. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is judge. So he's saying in effect, I, I don't need to defend myself. I have a defender. Namely, my father. And he is seeking my glory. My father will seek my glory. My father will vindicate me. My father will defend me. I don't need to win this argument. My father will win it in the end. And he will be your judge. It's just a warning, isn't it? He's saying, you dishonor me. My father is glorifying me. So if you dishonor me, you're setting yourself at cross purposes with God. And he will be your judge. That's the That's the cluster of thought here, which is saying, don't do that. You don't want to have God as your judge. You don't. He's God. You're not. You don't ever want to meet him as your judge. Therefore, get in line with what he's doing. Namely, he's glorifying me, not dishonoring me like you are. This is a a warning not to align yourself with any who dishonor the Lord Jesus. But that word judgment in this gospel has a special ring to it because most of this gospel is written to say Jesus didn't come into the world to judge. God is withholding judgment and sending a Savior. That's chapter 3, verse 17, right? God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God is not in a moment of judgment here mainly. He's He's still gathering. Oh, that Jerusalem would would come and gather like little chicks under my wings. I'm, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to gather you. It, it's beautiful in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now let this sink in. The you who just called him a Samaritan, a racial slur. You're a half-breed. Uh, the you who, uh, they're not even sure who his dad is, the you who's got a demon, and the you who is about to come under the judgment of God, if they don't turn, he says to those this, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So you blaspheming, dishonoring, 
people, you don't have to see death. You just have to keep my word. That's amazing to me. It, it, the reason it's amazing because there are other occasions in the gospel where Jesus says, I won't even talk to you anymore. Remember that? He says, by whose authority do you do these things? And he says, well, let me ask you, by whose authority did John the Baptist preach? And at the end of that, he says, I'm not talking to you anymore. And he told us, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give dogs what is holy. These are dogs. If there were any barking dogs in front of Jesus here, you got a demon. That's a dog talk. And in mercy, he doesn't walk away yet. Not until they pick up stones. So this is, this is him right now in this room doing that for you. So whatever you brought here feeling like I have called him that, you don't have to feel like he's walking away from you. Not yet. That's why I said you're here to know. This is a moment of grace for you. If anyone keeps my word, he will never die. He will never see death, Jesus says. Now what does that mean? He will never see death. The adversaries here repeat it in the second half of verse 52. They say, you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. He shifts from, they shift from see to taste. I think Jesus is okay with that because he doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, no, you misquoted me. I didn't say taste, I said see. I think he said, you want to use taste when you see? It's okay. So he's saying, if, if you keep my word, that is, if you believe what I say, embrace what I say, treasure what I say, honor what I say, hold on to what I say as your great value, you're not going to see death. You're not going to taste death. I th I'll give you a little clue as to how I read the Gospels. Um, I think that all four Gospels were written with the expectation that the church would read them again and again and again and therefore know how it ended, except the first time they read it. They would know how it ended. And therefore, any effort to read any part of the Gospel without knowing the importance of the end I think would go against the author's intention. So when he says, you keep my word, you live forever. You never die. He's not saying, oh, you don't have to know anything about the cross. The Gospels are going to end there. This story is going to end there. And he's already said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so when he says, my word, that's one of them. So if you keep my words, you remember what I said about, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to be the shepherd substitute for you. I'm going to destroy death for you. I'm going to rise from the grave for you. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. If they take it, I take it back. All Those are my words. 
It's not just do's, not just commandments. Like, oh, keep the commandments. That's not the point. Keep his word. Love his word. Love the revelation of the Son of God in his totality. If you embrace what he said about himself and his death and his resurrection and his commandments, you embrace that's my life, you live forever. You never, ever die. You never see death. Really. <laughs> I woke up this morning, right? Got out my phone and uh, went to Google News. Click. First thing at the top of the list. NASCAR driver dead last night. Crash. Next thing in the news, 40 people dead in Iraq in a plane crash. I didn't even catch whether it's our, our guys trying to bring food to the Christians trapped. Daily Ebola deaths. Daily Gaza deaths, daily Ukraine deaths, daily Christians persecuted all over the place. What do you mean, Jesus? You won't see it. I see it. And you will be it, right? I mean, 50,000 people die a day in this world, every day. It's not like death is a surprise. So what does he mean when he says, you, you will never taste death? Look at verse 51. Let's just see it. These are his words. He doesn't say, falsely, falsely will I say to you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death or taste death. One of the most powerful moments in my seminary life, a long time ago now, was the funeral of James Morgan, who had been my systematic theology teacher. I think he was 36. And he had four kids. And he had stomach cancer. I had played racket, handball. We played handball in those days. Put on a glove. You ever done this? This hurts. Um, we had played handball together, and uh, he had taught me important things, and we had argued together, and, and I'm at his funeral, and Lewis Smeads, who taught me ethics, stood up with his long, flowing white hair, and in his booming voice said, James Morgan is not dead! And, and my, my 24-year-old spine just tingled. His wife and kids were sitting on the front row. Just tingled. He is not dead. I've never forgotten that moment. It just landed on me like an avalanche of truth and power and and grace. So my question is, okay, if he's not dead, we were talking together just a few weeks ago and now he's in that box up there. What happened if he's not dead? What, what, what do you call it? And Jesus gives the answer doesn't he? In chapter 11 in front of Lazarus tomb. Very familiar text. Most of you would know this by heart probably. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, 
Though he die, yet shall he live. And verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Well, wait a minute. What do you, what, come on. Though he die, he shall never die. Which is it? The one who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And the one who lives and believes in me shall never die. So, yes, we die. And no, we don't die. Lazarus' body was right there in the grave. And he was not dead. And he was dead. Chapter 5, verse 24, an even more important insight from Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, chapter 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, not will have, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Believers in Jesus have passed already from death to life. That's over. That's done. The passing from death to life is over. It's over. It's done. They already have eternal life. And eternal life cannot, by definition, stop. Right? Eternal life can't stop. Believers don't see death. They don't taste death. Their bodies die. They lie there in the coffin and they look like they're asleep. Right? That's why the Bible frequently treats death as sleep. It looks like sleep. And it is as simple as sleep for God to take care of. They, they, their bodies are there. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. And they should be changed. The bodies die, but we don't die. We've passed from death to life. We have eternal Life, eternal life is unbroken and in unending life. So back in chapter 3 to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means life must come into being in you that will never stop being. You must have a new kind of life, Nicodemus. It isn't just this. It isn't just this. This physical, heart-beating, brainwave thing. That is not the life that is the main life. You need a life that is so woven into you as a person that you will never die. You, the you, the essential you, will never die. And if you have to lay down your body for a brief season, that's not ideal. It's not the goal. But you will be alive. To die is to be with Christ. And that is far better. Philippians 1.23 Apart from the body is at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. 
Paul loved the thought that he could never die. When our bodies die, now this, is, this takes a lot of faith. And I have never died physically yet. And I pray about it a lot. Like R.C. Sproul used to say, I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of dying. I know exactly what he means. So do all you older folks. We got the death issue fixed, but this dying thing, what will that be? What will that be like? And I want to say to you, on the basis of this text, and I'll give you the person who's giving it in just a minute, I want to say to you, there will be not one millisecond of broken fellowship. With Jesus. That's amazing. Not one. It's not as though you have to wait a few minutes. Heart stops beating and then... I almost... No. Yes. I almost wanted to correct the song. It's not wrong. But when it says we wake in heaven, I thought, that's how it suggests we fell asleep. And then we woke, and there was a little bit of time in between. <laughs> no, maybe, maybe it doesn't mean that. No time. No time in between. You're his now. Eternal life. You won't see. You won't see the end of your eternal life. You won't taste the end of your eternal life. Because there is no end of your eternal life. You can't see, and you can't taste what isn't. Your eternal life never ends. Now we'll come back in just a minute to close out with the implication of that. But first, the mockery and what the mockery draws out. And some of you, I don't know who you are, may be feeling, ah, that's just weird mythology he's talking about. So verse 52 now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now that question is why we get the, the greatest revelation in the Bible right here. If they hadn't asked that question, we wouldn't be getting this amazing word that we get about the deity of Jesus. So I'm thankful for this horrible opposition because of what it draws out. It comes out in two steps, two unbelievably amazing steps. Here's stage number one of Jesus' answer. This is verse 54 through 56. Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you do, you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. That's almost as amazing as the most amazing thing, but it's not the most amazing thing. It's just close. He what? He saw my day. What's that mean? He saw my day. He saw the time when I 
am alive. My day, my day, my triumph, my victory. He saw me in my day, my victory, my time, my throne, my reality. He saw me. He knew me. Amazing. The commentators on this just go all over the place trying to figure out what was the vision, you know, where that happened with Abraham and the promise and the event. and what, what, Where is that? And, and Jesus does not pause to explain this at all. And I think the reason is they don't care at all. They're leaning in on the implication of it. And they're going to push it to the end. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, if Jesus had meant to say, like I say, good Jehovah's Witness, I pre-existed Abraham. He could have said that real easily. Before Abraham was, I was. That's the way you say that, right? Before Abraham was, I was. Like Michael, an angel. There's no blasphemy in angels showing up in human flesh. Right? That's what they do. They take on appearances. There's no blasphemy in an angel showing up. This is blasphemy. Unless it's true. They, they, they were ready to kill him. And you kill blasphemers by stoning. And the reason they were ready to kill him is because he didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Which is weird. Weird grammar. And he means it to be gloriously weird. Right? Because he, he knew he knew what they knew, Exodus three fourteen. Who shall I say sent me, Moses asked God. When I go down there, they're going to say, who sent you? And he said, tell them I am who I am. Say, I am sent you. This is the clearest declaration in the mouth of Jesus that he is God. That he is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. I am. So, we got two points in this text. You are mortal if you keep the words of Jesus. God said so. That's the point. Uh, closing implication. The world needs you to believe that. They don't know what to believe. They don't. They don't need more cautious Christians. They don't need more Christians who just look like them, live like them, avoid all the troubles and risks like them, are afraid of death just like them. You know, 1973, Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize winner called, I bet a lot of you know this, The Denial of Death. Boy, was that a popular book when I was... In, seven, in uh, graduate school. The denial of death. He was a sociologist. Not a believer as far as I know. Here's the thesis of that book. 
The main thesis of this book, he says, is that the fear of death haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity. See what he's saying? The fear of death is the mainspring of human activity. That's an amazing claim. The mainspring of all we do is colored by this avoidance and denial. I'm not going to die, I'm not going to die, I'm not going to die. Not today at least, not today at least. And that denial and fear is permeates our lives. Let me keep reading here just another sentence. Uh, the main thesis of this book is that the fear of death haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny of man. Now, the writer to the Hebrews agrees with that analysis of the human condition. Because in chapter 2, verse 14, he says that Jesus uh, took on flesh, became like us, in order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who through the fear of death have been held in lifelong bondage. That's amazing. That's exactly what Becker said the human race is. Enslaved to the denial of death. We just can't let this in on our daily consciousness because it is so discouraging and horrifying. We don't know what's on the other side, if there is another side. And we, we love our, our sex and we love our food and we love our family and we love our everything. And death means take it all away and we cannot let that in because it's going to ruin our lives. And that's true. Unless you will never. And if you will never die, you are the freest people in the world. Like, make my day, Mr. Martyr Maker. <laughs> I mean, seriously, if we, if we believe these things, so many of our little anxieties would look so foolish. So foolish. So, I close by saying, the world needs the Christ and the courage of Christians who believe they will never die. Let me say it again. This, wherever you live, wherever you work, you know what they need from you? They need a, a life of courage, risk-taking, radical, wild, crazy Christianity. And they need the Christ of, of a heart who knows I will never die. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know I preach above my capacities here. I am as prone to anxiety, prone to murmur, prone to fear death as anybody. And I'm praying for myself and for all of us now. God, would you cause this glorious word from the glorious divine Savior to sink 
deeper than it has in the past. Go down deep now, I pray, and cause us to walk in the liberty that Hebrews is talking about, to set you free. He came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver those who their whole life had been held in lifelong bondage by the fear of death. Oh, do that deliverance now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.